Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, disinformation. It seems like a word we never really heard, but today has become part of a daily lexicon. To me, it's nothing new. I've been pushing back against false information, especially around science, for over two decades. Uh, and, and most of the effort has been centered around dispelling this deliberate, manufactured, and readily propagated nonsense around genetically engineered crops. I've also had a good chance to debate issues like vaccines, especially during the release of the mRNA vaccines around COVID, and have really taken the point in mRNA vaccines around livestock, and, and that's been a hot topic lately. I'm glad that I get to discuss that. But over the years, I've gotten to give presentations and take on debates on evolution, water conservation, climate change, you name it. And, and in all these well-established scientific areas, there's always somebody out there with a counter-narrative, somebody with a, a point that's believed by a significant portion of the population, a group of people that rejects the empirical evidence that's been derived from rigorous hypothesis-based tests, That's stuff that I like. Now, frequently, the counter-narrative is propagated for political gain, and typically by some fringe actors of different political movements. And we see this a lot today, and we'll refer to this in the podcast. There's a lot of disinformation that happens in politics, and it's maybe a little easier there because there is no ultimate hard truth that's easy to point to like we can do with science. You know, we can show you figures. A little bit, uh, little bit slimier in politics. Now, for what it's worth, my voter's registration card says NPA, no party affiliation. And I've worked with good folks on both sides of the political aisle in my career. So um, any comments today are not an expression of my political views or some political statement as much as an observation about how disinformation has been examined in regard to political rhetoric. And I had to make that clear. I don't need to lose 50% of listeners because they say I was subscribed to one political party or the other or stick a D or an R after my name. Um, I'm a social liberal, a fiscal conservative, a very libertarian-minded person who works close to agriculture. So um, nobody out there really flips my cookie. So, so there. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Lee McIntyre. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. McIntyre. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. I've been uh, a fan for a while, and I've, I've read a number of your books. So first off, can you give me an idea of what a research fellow in the Center for Philosophy and History of Science does? I, I, get to, I have the luxury of getting to write on whatever I want to write about. So I've... Um, I'm a philosopher of science by training, you know, very interested in questions around the philosophy of science. So sometimes I write uh, for my philosophical colleagues, you know, I write uh, research essays, just like back when I was a professor. But now I sort of have the freedom to be able to write on things, you know, anything that I want to. And um, what I've found that I really love to do most is write books that are accessible to the general public. 
So I still consider myself to be a philosopher, and I still am, but I'm writing now to reach a much larger audience. And really, that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. I'd like to discuss your recent book, which is entitled On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. And uh, I was glad to pick this up and read it. It codified a lot of the things that I was always thinking and put them in the really nice words for me here. So um, let's start out by talking about what disinformation is and and how is it different from misinformation? Yeah, I, I think that's really the central question. Misinformation is an accident. It's when you believe something that's not true, but you're, you know, simply mistaken about it. And, you know, maybe if somebody shared the facts with you, you'd change your mind. Disinformation is a lie. Disinformation is created by someone uh, with an interest um, who wants you to believe something false because they get something out of it. So really, in a way, it's, you know, creating a victim uh, out of their believers because they're getting them to believe this false thing that doesn't really benefit them. And are we seeing an uptick in disinformation or is it really just that we're more sensitive to it? Or is it because it's so much falsehood that's being propagated by social media and even traditional media? Disinformation has existed for a long time. I mean, look, liars have been around probably since the beginning of human speech. The concept of disinformation, you know, as a, a means of, uh, of warfare really began in the 1920s, uh, just after the Russian Revolution, when, you know, V.I. Lenin um, you know, founded the Cheka, and his first director of the Cheka was uh, uh, Felix Dzerzhensky, and they tried to figure out how to wage psychological warfare, you know, how to, how to win without firing a bullet, because, you know, bullets were expensive, and they didn't have as many of them as the other side did. And so they got very good at it. And then those principles have now been passed down. And, you know, 100 years later, they're a modern disinformation warfare. So disinformation has been around, you know, as a strategic campaign of, you know, uh, warfare, if you want to think of it that way, for about 100 years. It's worse now because um, disinformation, the, the key thing, you know, in any sort of a campaign like this is amplification just to you know, have a um, a falsehood that you want people to believe, how are you going to get it out there? You know, how are you going to spread the word? But with the internet, especially in an era in which most people get their news from social media, uh, all of a sudden now disinformation is everywhere. And it's having these horrible consequences for science, for democracy, for the economy, you know, just everywhere you look. And I've been really interested in this as it affects science for a long time. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, I, I've uh, debated people on evolution and COVID, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, brought lots of discussion about vaccination and all the places where I got to publicly uh, oppose or, or handle or try to diffuse disinformation, which was blatant disinformation, not just misinformation. But your book really highlights disinformation as it applies to politics. And some folks, you know, who listen to a podcast on biotechnology may say, oh, this is irrelevant. But to (laughs) me, it was the perfect way to demonstrate the power of false information in shaping a narrative and in getting a, a, a group, a sociological tribe to, uh, to accept that disinformation 
for some sort of a, a uh, agenda. And so just for today, we're really talking about the phenomenon and not really some sort of partisan discourse here. I don't think that's yeah. where we want to be because it happens on the political left and right, you know, even not maybe not evenly, but it happens on both sides. And what are some recent examples? Well, you put your finger on a really important historical point which is that I think that one reason that we have so much disinformation right now in the political sphere is because politicians looked at what was happening with science denial and said, wow, that was really effective. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can use disinformation and you know strategic denial to get people to believe what we want them to believe about crime, about elections, about immigration, you know, about whatever topic you can think of. So, you know, disinformation is a tactic that can be used, you know, for many different kinds of denial. One is science denial. And then the other that I think of today, which, as you point out, is what the book is really about. It's what I think of as reality denial, where, you know, the problem has uh, metastasized. And I know that's a strong word, but I think it has uh, into, you know, talking about facts in general. So, look, disinformation, but it is absolutely true that disinformation is behind um, science denial. And, you know, if you've ever spoken with somebody who is anti-evolution or against uh, uh, um, vaccines or they think that uh, climate change isn't real, you know, you understand that there are powerful interests behind, you know, all of these campaigns who are, you know, spreading, uh, you know, weaponized lies because they're trying to get, you know, a mass of people to think that, Climate change is not real or that vaccines can kill you. So, you know, it may be hard to imagine, you know, how this could be the case. But there was a, a very interesting article in 2019 in the uh, New York Times called Putin's Long War Against American Science. And most people who are listening to your podcast are science people or science adjacent, people who are interested in science. And how many knew that one of the main targets of foreign disinformation is American science? I mean, in that article, it outlines the fact that um, Putin has, you know, uh, spread disinformation about HIV AIDS, uh, about vaccines, about the MMR vaccine, you know, before the COVID one, but the COVID one as well, uh, about GMOs, you know, about just pretty much anything that he can get his hands on, understanding that science is a great um, you know, Western institution, um, really a, a worldwide institution at this point, but you see my point. If he can undermine American science, he's undermined American society. And so, you know, it, it does, uh, it does uh, happen in that way. By the way, you brought up, can it happen from the left or the right? Yes, it can. I mean, look at what happened with the vaccine denial before COVID. I mean, before COVID completely uh, polarized us, um, along right-left lines, you had perhaps an equal number of people on the left as on the right, maybe for different reasons, but who were anti-vax, you know, who thought that the, uh, maybe some were anti-government and some were anti-big pharma, but, you know, this idea that the MMR vaccine causes autism, uh, that didn't seem to be a partisan issue. Uh, that seemed to be, you know, something else. Uh, another issue where you see a lot of, uh, um, nonpartisan interest is GMOs. You see people on the left and on the right who are anti-GMO. Yeah, it's really interesting because it, it seems to me that vaccines seem to be much more of a 
uh, left wing thing for a long time. And then that's gradually shifted after the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine became available or during the pandemic. And other shifts are, are, uh, you see a little bit too, even with GMO a little bit starting to head a little more towards the right. Um, Not farmers, surprisingly, because when they're going after the farmers' chemicals that they use, there might be a little bit of pushback there. But the big difference between science uh, denial and political reality denial, as you put it, is it seems like I, I can go into... Uh, a textbook, or I could go into a journal and I can bring somebody evidence and say, look what the science says. And we don't change the minds with facts very much, but at least it's a starting point. It seems like politics, it's a lost cause because people trust who they trust for information. And until you take away those sources, it's very, very difficult to change someone's mind about a political falsehood. I maintain that it's hard to change their mind about a scientific falsehood as well. I mean, have you ever spoken with a flat earther? Um, <laughs> you, you just—I have. I've, I've been to a flat Earth convention. I mean, people—it's uh, their identity. It's not just what they happen to believe. I mean, if if you think that it's easier with science denial to just you know share the facts and you'll get people than it is in politics, I I, I don't know about that. I mean, because. You have people build their identity around some very strange things. And, you know, you talked about the um, uh, vaccines, you know, changing from being more left wing or, or more nonpartisan to now being more right wing. That was on purpose. That was because of disinformation. People were polarized. One of the goals of disinformation is not just to get you to believe a falsehood. It's to polarize us into teams, you know, us versus them about a factual issue. And so, when politicians get their hands on that, you know, they can use it. Uh, look, uh, uh, climate change has become a completely uh, partisan, uh, uh, you know, climate denial, a completely partisan thing now. That was also intentional. You know, somebody, it's polarized because somebody polarized it. Yeah, and, and then your book really talks about this in a, in a very effective way. Like one of the parts of your book, one of the lines from there, speaks about this as this is why distrust i'm quoting this this is why distrust not just doubt is the prime objective of the denialist campaign and it seems like uh, that one of the major goals is to break the trust not only in the science but also the scientists and uh, and in the case of politicians in the politicians themselves it's uh, constantly an ad hominem smear campaign around political season. It's all about showing that you have the lesser of two evils almost. So how much of a role is this um, spreading of distrust in disinformation? I, I think you, you put that really well. I think that's one of the main goals. Um, I've often said that uh, science deniers or, or reality deniers don't have a fact deficit. They have a trust deficit. That one of the goals of disinformation is to break your trust in anybody who doesn't believe the same falsehood that you do. And the, the super insidious part of that is that what that succeeds in doing is not just undermining one scientific fact, say, but all of them, because all of a sudden you don't trust scientists anymore. Maybe you go elsewhere for your information. It, it undermines not just one scientific truth, but the process by which scientific truths are tested and vetted in the first place. And, every, you know, scientists are now, and I, I don't have to tell your audience, I'm sure they, they get plenty of letters from people who are not only, um, you know, questioning their credentials or, you know, uh, 
trying to be making FOIA requests, you know, about to show their research, but also claiming that they're getting kickbacks, that they're corrupt, that they're fraudulent, you know, that they're in cahoots with somebody who's paying them off. Um, that's a major level of distrust. I just got a letter today about somebody who was uh, talking about this uh, uh, surrounding vaccines and how it was all a fraud and people were being you know, paid off. So, I mean, that level of attack on scientists, that's part of disinformation. It's because, look, that's, I mean, that's really the trifecta, isn't it? You don't just get people not to believe the truth. You get them to not believe the truth and to hate anyone who does believe the truth. And then, you know, also next step to take action on that. Yeah, that, and that's it exactly. I mean, I went through some times about eight years ago where I had a number of activist groups come after me through FOIA and other stuff. And the campaign they mounted is uh, forever. And it's an anchor I'll drive, I'll drag to the grave because anytime I'm having a discussion online about, you know, uh, even just on a local farm website, you know, something really, really very basis, very basic, uh, someone will say, well, so-and-so's farm sprays this on their crops. And I'll say, yeah, but that's not a problem because you can use it safely. And the first thing they do is go back and start posting a pile of links to, you know, GM watch and all these other anti-GMO websites, mm-hmm. which basically smear me. And it doesn't address the question. It's the classic ad hominem. It goes for discrediting the speaker. Right. And uh, so it's that the disinformation campaign, and that's why they're also effective. They're with you forever. And one of the things that they always say to me is um, that they'll accuse me of is, well, you talk about biotechnology. Um, it's just a tobacco strategy. It's just the same thing they did. And so is can you tell us a little bit more about that particular disinformation campaign and how that really defined the genre? So the tobacco strategy is very well discussed in uh, Naomi Reskis and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt. They're the ones that I think named it the tobacco strategy. And they go back in history to um, December 15th, 1953, which is when the heads of the major tobacco companies came together at the Plaza Hotel in New York City to have a meeting. Uh, you know, they were going to stop fighting one another about, you know, whose cigarettes were healthier and take on the common enemy, which is the, um, you know, the scientists who were just about to show a causal link between smoking and lung cancer. And they hired a public relations executive to come in and advise them. And he said, fight the science. And he didn't mean fight the science through evidence. He meant fight it through public relations. Get ads out in American newspapers. uh, Raise doubt where there isn't any. Uh, Make it clear that, you know, the science isn't done yet. We need more research. Um, You know, they're they're looking for consensus, but they they haven't heard the other side of the story. Another part of the campaign was to, you know, start uh, the tobacco companies to start um, trying to make the journalists and the editors feel bad because, oh, well, you're just a, you're just a shill for science. You know, you're not telling the other side of the story, you know, you're just biased, you know, so accusation of bias. I mean, that's uh, something that journalists take seriously. And so they started to want to tell the other side. Well, you know, as somebody recently put it, wasn't me, I read it somewhere. How do you tell both sides of a lie? I mean, you can't, but by trying to, you tell the, you, you amplify the lie. And that's really all that the tobacco strategy was about. It was about, I mean, look, they didn't need to prove that cigarette smoking didn't cause lung cancer. 
they needed to raise enough doubt that they could continue to sell cigarettes for the next 40 years. And that's what they did until they were finally busted in front of Congress in a hearing in uh, 1999, 98, I forget when it was. They were fined $200 billion. And they paid it and then went back to what they were doing because, you know, okay, busted, we paid the fine. And now, you know, don't come after us anymore because now everybody knows that smoking causes lung cancer and we're going to continue to sell. And, you know, the reason they did that is because the most lucrative market for their product was overseas. And so, you know, just go ahead. So, and I mean, that paved the way. And again, Oreskes and Conway talk about this for uh, corporate money and pushback uh, against, uh, uh, you know, for climate denial and on the ozone hole and uh, uh, acid rain, you know, all these other things were financed and pushed by uh, corporate money and research interest groups that, you know, were also funded um, to, you know, create this strategic denial. You know, it was a really important part of the book and I appreciated seeing that. And, And so before we take a break, it's kind of an unrelated question, but the book has a really interesting format. <laughs> um, I ordered this through mail and I got this little package in the mail and <laughs> <laughs> I thought this must be some kind of mistake, but it, it's a real small format, which, yeah. but it's perfectly fine. I guess the question is, was there a rationale in making this a pocket sized book that you could almost keep in your backpack in case you uh, need a quick reminder or was, was there, was there, part of the strategy in a disinformation book of having it portable. That was my strategy. My strategy in consultation with my editor was that we wanted to make it small. We wanted to make the book cute. It's a tiny little red uh, uh, paperback. You can read it in an hour. You can put it in your in your back pocket and you can pass it on to a friend, which is exactly what I want you to do. Um, and so the idea was to make it look like a manifesto. Because in a way, it really is a manifesto. It's really a training manual for what the average American citizen can do to fight disinformation. One of the goals of disinformation is to make you feel powerless, but you're not powerless. So what can you do? At the, at the very end of the book, I have 10 steps that anybody can take to fight disinformation, 10 practical steps. So it is in every sense a practical advocacy book. Um, and it's a, uh, you know, that, that was intentional. Very good. Well, th- I, I really thought that was effective. I, I got through it. It took me more than an hour. It took me about two hours. You read the footnotes. That's do- what you did. Well, I read the footnotes. I was dog-earing too many pages. <laughs> I kept hitting nuggets that I wanted to share on Twitter, okay. Okay. Um, which which I did. Um, so we're speaking with Dr. Lee McIntyre. He's the author of Post-Truth, How to Talk to a Science Denier, and in this one, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. And we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast 
We're speaking with Dr. Lee McIntyre, and we're speaking about his recent book on disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy, which is really a how-to guide of understanding who the disinformation sources are, how their messages are amplified, and who actually believes their messaging and the problems that it has, particularly what happens in a democracy and a legitimate threat to democracy. Uh, from understanding the book and and something I agree with very much. And it really ties back in with, we spoke uh, briefly about Russia. And one of the major themes that comes up is this relationship between disinformation about American technology and Russia. Um, I've had guests on the podcast about accidental links that they found between uh, GMO disinformation and Russia uh, that they found on accident. but things like mRNA vaccines, a lot of this information allegedly has a Russian origin. And do you think that today's disinformation environment has a substantial component of in, of disinformation from Russia or maybe other foreign interests? Absolutely. Um, this is now this is something that sounds like a conspiracy theory, except that there is evidence for this. And so I'm going to. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell people the story, but also uh, tell them some sources that they can uh, can read on this. So, in this was all, what I'm about to say is reported in the Wall Street Journal. Um, everybody knows the falsehood, the rumor, you know, the lie that there are tracking microchips in the COVID vaccines, but people don't know where that came from. And when you trace it back, what you learn is that that. Uh, lie came from Russia. Uh, it was first reported in a um, it was first reported in an online journal called the Oriental Review. It's English language uh, propaganda arm of the SVR, which is uh, what became of the uh, the KGB. And uh, this article in April 2020 said that any future uh, COVID vaccines developed in the West would have tracking microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who had patent 666 on this technology. And then it said at the bottom of the article, you know, share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which apparently a lot of people did because the following month, you know, May 2020, just two months into the pandemic, way before Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, 28% of the American public thought that there was something to this. Now, how many thousand people died? Because, you know, that rumor just spread, but still nobody knew where it came from. Um, now, why did Russia do this? Well, they had a competing vaccine called the Sputnik, which, you know, they wanted to sell on the lucrative Asian and African markets. And there was a point of pride, too. I mean, they didn't call it the Sputnik for nothing. And did they care? Did Putin care? Did his trolls and, you know, information warriors care? that they were killing people with this? I don't think they did. Now, they might have worried about that later because they apparently did such a good job with this campaign that they kept people from taking the Sputnik vaccine because they were afraid that it was going to have tracking microchips in it. I, I don't know what, you know, how that all happened, but I mean, it sort of backfired. But you know, yes, Russia uh, manufactures just a tremendous amount of disinformation. Um, aimed at American science, aimed at democracy. Um, China, Iran, they do the same thing too, though not to the same extent as Russia. And then, you know, the one of the insidious things about the, uh, primarily I'm thinking here of the Russian disinformation, 
is that they understand that because it's coming from overseas, it can be fought by American cyber warriors who are you know, very good at this. So what Russia does is they try to launder it as quickly as possible through American media. Because if they can put that disinformation through a domestic filter, then by under the Constitution, American uh, you know, army cannot touch it. And so that's sometimes why you see talking points from Russia today ending up on cable news. Uh, it's very interesting because it, they, it is an excellent weapon. If you can get a kernel of disinformation into the um, American zeitgeist where we, they, where they've created this tremendous polarization, that's actually the best weapon to be able to conquer or be able to at least make inroads into uh, causing trouble within the United States, getting people against each other. And I, it really would be a clever strategy if it wasn't true, right? I mean, if, if, if we uh, didn't acknowledge that there was evidence for it happening. But if we start focusing on things like uh, what's happening internally with the stop the steal, like that whole thing, and we can talk about that now in a very, very um, frank way, because some of the players have pleaded guilty and, and said that it was all a sham and that the audits have been done. And there's not any evidence that this was a a stolen election or a systematic stolen election. And what do you think is going to happen here? Will the people, as they come clean and as the folks who have been manufacturing false information or carrying false information begin to admit that, okay, it was, it was all made up. Um, will others continue to push it? And will people pretend that it, it still is a real thing, no matter how much people admit that it isn't? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, <laughs> yes, because um, it, it's, you know, as long as there's somebody out there pushing it, as long as it's amplified, you know, as long as there are enough people who believe it to keep it alive uh, in the media, uh, in some ways that can even, you know, strengthen the belief, uh, you know, in a perverse way of, uh, of other people. So, I mean, you know, look, just because there are some people who come out and, you know, admit that it was a fake. um you know, in some, sometimes that can, you know, make people feel like, you know, oh, they, they got to them or, you know, that person was never with us from the beginning. I mean, you're, you're basically talking about a conspiracy theory mindset here and to a conspiracy theory mindset, you know, evidence, they'll take it. Lack of evidence, that just shows you how good the conspirators are. So, I mean, they're kind of in this hermetically sealed box where it's very difficult to get out of. And that's why, the amplification of disinformation is really the most dangerous part because once the message is created and it's out there, I mean, to go, to go viral, it's really hard to keep it from, uh, you know, from not going viral. It's hard, you know, it's hard to keep it out of people's heads because in some ways we're primed to believe this. We've got all these cognitive biases, one of which is that we tend to believe the first thing we hear. And if we, especially if we hear it over and over again, and just think about, you know, the repetition effect and the primacy effect and how effective those are in politics also works in science. I mean, you know, again, the Russians are masters at this. One of the references I wanted to give people, and they have an interest in not only undermining science, by the way, but of course, American democracy. You know, they had a hand in undermining the, uh, you know, fair vote in 2016, uh, and they did it again in 2020, and they're going to do it in 2024. One of the references I want to draw people's attention to, one of the scariest books I read recently, it's called The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare, 
It's by Kira Giles, and it's published by NATO. So this is not a Russian manual. This is a NATO manual to try to wake people up to the foreign threat. And it includes some nuggets like this. In the Russian construct, information warfare is not an activity limited to wartime. Information confrontation is waged, waged constantly in peacetime. Then I'll skip ahead a few, uh, a few pages. Recent Russian activities in the information domain would indicate that Russia already considers itself to be in a state of war. And by the way, he's talking about a state of war with us, right? Because if you can, if you can achieve your goals without firing a shot, you know, if you've got your um, here, I've got the passage here. I could just read it. Um, in its more ambitious description, information warfare is considered capable of avoiding the necessity of armed conflict altogether by achieving strategic goals on its own. Wow. So, you know, yes, we're already in an information war, not just, you know, with Russia overseas, but, you know, with domestic sources that amplify it and, ha you know, have their own strategic interests, not just about science, but about democracy itself. So again, you know, I told people this sounds like a conspiracy theory, except <laughs> that there's all sorts of information available from the you know, from the DIA, from the, the Wall Street Journal, the Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. Why haven't you heard any of this? It's because it's, it doesn't make its way to cable news. It doesn't make its way out into the mainstream. I heard one wag say recently that the, uh, um, the truth is behind a paywall while the lies are free. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you, uh, are we to blame for the fact that, you know, that whole story that I told you about the Wall Street, that the Wall Street Journal reported on about the, uh, the Russians being behind the uh, falsehood that there were microchips in the vaccines, that was never on MSNBC, that was never on CNN, it was never, certainly never on Fox. Nobody picked it up. Yeah, it, it really is goes back to the old Mark Twain quote about how, uh, you know, lie travels around the world before the uh, truth gets its shoes on. Yeah. And but it also is a question of magnitude, maybe. And it seems to me just somebody who does spend a lot of time watching the news. It's the only thing I ever put on television. But I also scan all the different channels, including those uh, which uh, and I'm really interested more in how are they skewing the consensus story yes. and how is it how, where's the spin coming from because i'm really interested in that from a rhetorical criticism side and uh, do you see evidence that disinformation is even becoming more hyperbolic that different sources particularly maybe even th those on the extreme right are really trying to out disinform each other uh to appeal um, to the fringes i i don't know if it's a competitive thing uh, i just I know that it's easier now than it's been in the past because the news uh, seems to glom onto it so quickly. Um, you know, one fears that AI is very soon going to be able to assist in making better disinformation than there's been in the past. But look, we just got a textbook example of this recently in the Israel-Hamas uh, war when that um, bomb dropped on the missile dropped on the, the hospital. It actually fell on the, uh, the parking lot of the hospital in Gaza. And immediately Hamas was on this with the disinformation that this was from Israel and the New York Times and a bunch of other outlets 
fell for it and started to report it that way. I I think the headline in the New York Times, they just apologized for it, by the way. The headline was something like, um, Israel drops bomb on, uh, you know, Gazan hospital, comma, Hamas says. Well, that's not the appropriate way to report it, right? I mean, that's <laughs> pushing it about as far as you can toward that this is really true. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't careful with the story. And so, and it seems to be that there's a lot of evidence and a lot of intelligence, which now shows that that was an errant missile from Islamic Jihad, which, you know, they fired it as Israel and it didn't make its target and it fell in the hospital parking lot instead. But that's when the disinformation campaign started. Now, you know, that was when Hamas said, aha, we can use this. And I assume it was them. And um, that that is an example, I think, of, you know, what what we're in for. That kind of, that's hyperbolic, right? How fast it happens, how much you can get even trusted institutions like the New York Times to fall for it. Well, what's so interesting to me is how as soon as that story hit, you saw immediate flood into two different camps. It was from Israel or it was, or it was from uh, Islamic Jihad. And the two groups uh, f- fell in line. You couldn't find anybody yeah. who was in the middle who was saying, let's wait and see what the satellite says, you know, or anything That's like right. that. It was the same thing the night that, uh, that Donald Trump was indicted. You, nobody had seen an ounce of evidence from the the DA. You know, we didn't see the real evidence. We had everybody had a hunch, everybody, but you had everybody lining up on Fox saying, well, this is just a witch witch hunt and everybody showing up on MSNBC saying we finally got him with a smile on their faces, but nobody had seen the evidence. And so it's this polarization and this willingness to follow a lead that agree that you agree with that stops us from even beginning to consider the real evidence. And I think that's why it works. And and I want you to contrast this, and and to your audience, you know, they'll they'll understand this before I even open my mouth, to the way that scientists approach an empirical question, factual question. You know, it it either was or it wasn't from Israel. It either hit the hospital or it didn't. This number of people died or they didn't. How do you test something like that? You understand that you need evidence. You understand that you know you you're maybe going to get something wrong if you uh, you know if you jump on it too fast the the thing that i love about science and and i wrote about this in in an earlier book called the scientific attitude is that i think that what really distinguishes science is the ability to say i care about evidence so much that i'm willing to change my mind in the face of new evidence so it's not just that you don't jump to a conclusion before you have evidence which is i think what you're talking about it's the ability to say, in light of new evidence, I, I am now going to change my mind. But the problem with this information is it's so charged emotionally. I wonder if anybody in those original camps did change their mind. You know, I heard people saying after Biden came out and said, you know, well, according to the best satellite data and, you know, sources within American military intelligence, that was a rocket from Islamic Jihad which he wouldn't have said in public unless there was you know very high chance of credibility. I heard a lot of people say, "Oh, that you know he he's a liar. He's just, you know, he's mm-hmm. a shill. It's just because he's on Israel's side." So, you know, even when there was evidence, they didn't want to hear the evidence because it didn't line up with their point of point of view. So, you know, that's the problem. Once people are polarized into different camps, they don't want to they don't want to hear the evidence. And um, you know, 
This is why in my heart and soul, I am still and will always be a philosopher of science, because I think that uh, science is the greatest invention that the human mind ever came up with. And it keeps us humble because we realize that we don't know everything. And, you know, the, the hubris of thinking, you know, that we do, that's usually reserved for science deniers. They're the ones who demand proof and certainty. If you're somebody who's done science, you understand it's about warrant. It's about evidence. You know, it's about probabilities. You, you can't prove that the vaccines are safe any more than you can prove that, you know, aspirin is safe. That's just not what it's about. That doesn't mean that you're justified in believing any old thing or saying, oh, you know, I could be right or this theory with less evidence, that looks attractive. I mean, that's just irrational. But it does mean that you have to be humble. You have to admit that, you know, in in a world where, you know, you're dealing with empirical phenomena, you can't know, you know, everything with certainty. And, and, you know, very well said. It's one of the best parts about a graduate education. And it was the thing that really changed me a lot. Um, and, and throughout my career has been, we test a hypothesis. And I would say maybe nine times out of 10, the data don't support our original mm-hmm. hunch. And that's a good thing. <laughs> you <laughs> learn from that. Yeah. yeah, we didn't think about it hard enough. And that the real story is much more interesting than our narrow perspective first brought us to. And that's where all the good stuff is, is when you can set aside your your predispositions and look carefully at the evidence. And there's something also very freeing about that, um, very liberating that you um you're let you're letting reality wag the do- you know, wag the tail rather than the other yes. way around. Exactly. I mean, like I said, you you let the evidence change your mind. In the mind of a deni- a science denier, they think, "Oh, you lied to me." No, I didn't lie to you. The evidence changed, so I changed my mind. What else would you have me do, right? But I mean, but the trick is not to go out there in the first place and say we're certain of this. I think that's why so many people in the you know with vaccines were so angry because they felt that the scientists were saying. You have to take this vaccine because we've proven that it's completely safe and effective. When what they were actually saying was, we've tested this, we know, uh, you know, we have a lot of evidence that it's good. And in an environment in which you're more likely to die if you don't take it than you are to suffer a vaccine reaction, if you do, you should take it. That, But that subtlety was lost on people. And then now they will say with a straight face, oh, Fauci was just lying to us. You know, the others mm-hmm. were just lying. Um, I mean, I get hate mail about this this sort of thing all the time. People don't understand that it's embracing uncertainty, being able to have the flexibility to change your mind. That's a strength. I mean, hell, that's a superpower to be able to do that. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I respect the New York Times for coming out and saying, we were wrong. We made a mistake. We shouldn't have done the headline that way. I mean, at least they did good, good journalistic practice. And retracted the headline and and owned up to the to the mistake now, there's another headline in the past they should retract too but we won't go there um <laughs> <laughs> one one with my big stupid face on it um you know the, and you and i should get together and talk about the idea of certainty versus risk because those are two yeah. concepts that people just don't get and when you when you give them a crack in the door of uncertainty that is a very very wide chasm of danger to the, to the average person yes and in this in the discussion of vaccines 
I watched Fauci, Fauci and um, uh, uh, Walensky, and I was you know throwing things at the television because it's like no, don't say it like that. And and we, it, I don't know where their communications folks were or whatever, but there were so many missteps that broke the trust of the yes. American yes. consumer. So that, that's right. I mean, and once trust is gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very tough to, uh, to earn it back. No, I, I, same thing. I mean, I, I would watch those broadcasts and think, you, you know, you, you're, you're way out on a limb there. You, you don't, you know, you, you may be right, you may not, but if you're wrong, it's, it's going to cause more damage in the long run. And it did. So we, you know, out of respect for time, we should turn a corner and really think about solutions. And so what are some of the solutions that you propose to fighting back against disinformation? Okay. So I wrote, so my early, you talked about my earlier book, my, and I wrote an entire book called how to talk to a science denier where I went out on the road and I spoke to flat earthers and climate deniers. And then once the pandemic hit, you know, my research sort of came to an end about going out on the road, but I still, you know, wanted to follow up on, you know, climate change on uh, GMOs, you know, different topics and, you know, wrote, wrote a book about that. And what I came to a conclusion in, in doing the book, it's really in, in a way for me to learn how to do this, was that face-to-face, one-on-one conversation is the way to go when you're talking to somebody who's already been infected with disinformation. Very hard to, now, here's the thing. It's very hard to get somebody to admit that they were wrong or that they were duped. And facts don't always work. Um, but the virtue of face-to-face conversation is that you build trust. And as I like to say, they don't, often don't have a fact deficit, they have a trust deficit. But if you talk to people face-to-face, they begin to trust you. It's just the magic of human conversation. Now, the problem is this doesn't always work. There's a brilliant study in Nature Human Behavior by Cornelia Bates and Philip Schmid, which talks about technique denial and um, a content, uh, I'm sorry, a technique rebuttal and content rebuttal, which shows the first empirical evidence that you can convince science deniers to change their mind. But there's a scalability problem here because so many people believe these things. And, you know, unless we're going to take scientists out of their lab and, you know, just get everybody talking to everybody who believes something wrong about science, you know, we've got a a whale of a problem. So I think... um, so I wrote a new book and I think that, it, and also the problem changed, not just to be about science, but about democracy and reality in general. I think that we, what we need now is to focus on clamping down on the amplification of disinformation. I think that the real danger here is that we let it get out of control. Um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate uh, in 2019 found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Why is that allowed? Why is that happening? I mean, I'm sure it's it's worse now as Twitter has, you know, taken down its Trust and Safety Council and it doesn't really have the same kind of content moderation they were doing even before, let alone deplatforming. So, I mean, what can the average citizen do? It's in my book at the end in the the 10 practical steps that citizens can take. Um I recommend and some of these ideas I borrowed from others, um, not just that they, you know, write a nasty letter to Elon Musk, is he even going to see it, let alone do anything, but write to his advertisers, write to Akamai and PayPal and Venmo, 
right to the companies that with you know without whom Twitter would go out of business. Um, you know, put pressure on your elected representatives to insist that um, the social media companies have a a board uh, that uh, you know of uh, nonpartisan, non-interested parties who are academic experts to review their algorithms to see if they're you know in danger of causing public harm. Don't wait for a whistleblower. Have a you know have a respected board of you know experts blind the user data and have somebody other than the senior executives, the senior engineers at Facebook and Twitter looking at those um, looking at those uh, uh, algorithms. So I mean, yes, there are things that we can do, and there are ways that the ordinary citizen can do it. But the the main one, I mean, if there's one thing I want to shout from the rooftops, it's this: you cannot win an information war unless you realize that you're in one. Once you admit that, once you realize that people don't just wake up one day wondering whether there's a, you know, a Jewish space laser causing the California wildfires or wondering whether there's bamboo in the ballots in Arizona. They were fed that as lies by somebody who wanted them to believe it. Once you embrace that, then you can begin to fight back. It's really, a, it's really a good point to go out on. I, I, and I'll butcher this line from your book, but it was one of the ones that I really liked was you don't fix a polluted river by just adding more water and diluting it. You have to stop the so, uh, pollution at the source. That's right. And, uh, it, and, uh, and really it encapsulates what you just said really well. Um, so overall the, the bottom line is understand that you're in the problem and uh, think about other ways that you can push back. These one-to-one conversations matter. Um, I live in the maroon sector of a red state and my neighbors, you know, they all have Trump signs. They, they've all spray painted pence off of them. <laughs> <Let's still laughs> in the from 2020. Oh, that's and, good to know that. Thanks for telling me that. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty funny. A lot of Trump won flags and, uh, but they're my neighbors. And if I show up with a non-rainbow six pack of Bud Light and can say, you know, help me understand how you feel about this. We can have a good conversation and, you know, and, and I, I'm not in their shoes, you know, empathy, all the good stuff that we talk about, but we, but in order to change things, I think I do change things with them and help them think, uh, think about these things differently um, just through a different lens yeah. because you take the time to do it and don't say, well, that guy voted for Trump. I'm not talking to him. You, it's uh, you are it making a difference. Issue. You you no, are making a difference. One on one conversation, uh, that, wonderful. Yeah, and I, I think it does work, and at least it 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 keeps uh, the peace in the neighborhood. And as things change, and as they uh, time rolls on, and maybe they see that maybe there is some merit to what I'm suggesting, and uh, maybe the stop the steal thing isn't holding so much water anymore. Um, maybe they do start to turn. And I, I say it over and over again to people in science communication: is you'll never change someone's mind but you can slowly help them change their own. Yeah. And I think that's uh, really where we're at. Uh, so, so if if people wanted to purchase a copy of Undisinformation, where are the best places to do that? So there are links on my website, leemcintyrebooks.com um, for, you know, Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, you know, all the, the online retailers. Um, it's in many independent bookstores uh, as well. So, you know, if you go out to a, independent bookstore, you just might find it or you can have them order it. Uh, I was recently in Sydney, Australia, and I saw it uh, in a bookstore and boy, that made my day. So it, it is around and, and, you should, and it's bright red. So you should be able to see it from across the room. Yeah, although it's small, it's bright red. I, I told my, 
marketing people. I want this to look like a stoplight on a foggy night. Uh, and that's what they did. <laughs> yeah. And the red color and the portable size make it a wonderful stocking stuffer for Christmas. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> just for what it's worth. you know. I, I couldn't um, say it, but you did. <laughs> Very good. So if people want to follow you on social media, are there, are you active on the Twitters or on uh, other media? I am. So I have uh, uh, Facebook and uh, LinkedIn, which I'm not as active on, but, but also Twitter. Yes. I just can't help myself. And my, uh, and I don't, I haven't memorized my handles for all those, but they're all linked on leemcintyrebooks.com. So if you go there just on the homepage, you'll find uh, links for all of that. And uh, also at the end of it, on the contact page, you'll find my email address. So if you want to write me, uh, happy to hear from you. (laughs) Very good. So Dr. Lee McIntyre, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, I hope we can do it again someday. This is really, really helpful in helping me be a little better at having these conversations. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Take the time to read on disinformation. It's a quick read. It's a small book, but it's filled with gems that can help you think about what this disinformation thing really is and how we can push back against it. It was an eye opener for me, and I've studied disinformation for a long time. So really highly recommended. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.